The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 10th chapter. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor is yourself. And the lawyer said to Jesus, or Jesus said to the lawyer, I apologize, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan moved while traveling came near him. And when the Samaritan saw the man, he was moved with pity. And so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back. I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed the man mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. I invite the congregation to be seated. So if anything gives us hope as we read today's lessons... We, uh, we have every Sunday a reading from a letter of Paul most of the time. At the very least, one of the letters in the New Testament section of the Bible. And some of the letters are by Paul, some of them are by other people. And there is much arguing about which ones are by which people. And that's the first thing that might bring us a little bit of comfort. The fact that even about the Bible, there is much arguing. And so, in some ways, maybe we don't sit so far from them, right? But the second thing that brings me comfort, and I say me as much as this congregation, because if you are mentioned in the name of one of Paul's letters, then it's not because you have served a mighty fine potluck and have been a shining example of what it means to live this life in Jesus. If you're mentioned in one of Paul's letters, it's because you have problems. And so we look at Romans and we look at Ephesians and we look at Colossians. You know, we look at Corinthians twice. Right. I mean, we we have lots of problems in lots of the congregations that Paul served and that other people served in the New Testament. And not only are there problems, but we see things that look an awful lot like the thing that congregations struggle with today. We see things like and the disciples did this too, people arguing about who the greatest is. We see things like people saying, well, my favorite preacher is. And then saying, well, those other preachers, they don't mean anything, but my preacher who baptized me, you know, or we see people arguing about who should come to communion. We see people arguing about what it means to be a Christian, whether or not you have to be circumcised. And if you think it's hard to get people to join the church now, imagine telling them that you had to be circumcised first. I mean, we are dealing with not just theoretical issues. We are dealing with the everyday life stuff. That all of us deal with. 
that, is, that are still relevant to us today, that still break our hearts and can lift us up as what we experience in our lives. So when we read today's, today's second lesson, you know, we hear Paul talking still about how these people who he is not writing because he's happy with them are still people who God loves, are still people who are part of the covenant of Jesus Christ, are still people who live in this forgiveness of sins in which we hope. So that's a word of hope for me. You know, one of the reasons that, that I enjoy so much being Lutheran, and I, I was born Lutheran, and so, you know, I was baptized in Okeechobee, Florida at, at Peace Lutheran Church, which was a Missouri Synod congregation. But, you know, we soon came over to what was, I guess, the LCA at that point and then converted to the Holy ELCA when that came into being. Right. So, you know, I've, I've been a Lutheran a long time. I, I remember seeing a lot of my friends around the time I was 12, 13, 14, and they all came to me and said, I found Jesus. That was weird to me. Because I didn't, I mean, this is a joke, but I'm, I'm also being serious. I didn't realize Jesus was lost. You know, we're, and, and the joke in my house is, you know, like, was he behind the couch? Is he back here? You know, where did you find Jesus? What they meant was that I got baptized. And when they explained to me that they'd been baptized, that confused me more. Because they would say, well, have you found Jesus? And, and have you been saved? And have you been baptized? Well, yeah, I got baptized a long time ago. I was like two and a half years old and my brother was an infant. You know, and they were like, what do you mean you were baptized? When you were, how, how did you make this choice for God when, when you were baptized at two and a half years old? Because their understanding of how the gospel works was just as foreign to me as my understanding of how the gospel works was to them. And isn't that something that we get wrapped up in an awful lot in our culture and in our congregations and in our synod, you know, this kind of tug of war back and forth over what the right way to do things is. You know, Jesus ordained that we light the right candle first because the right candle is the Christ candle. And that's the way it's been done ever since God created the universe, right? Or God ordained that we're, we wear these funny white robes because that's what Jesus likes, right? It, we have all these things that, that we think are the absolute way things have to be done. You know, do we process with the cross or does the cross start up here? You know, where does the choir sit? And you saw me kind of stressing this morning about where I should sit. And part of it's because sometimes I walk in and people are confused that I don't know where the preacher is supposed to sit. Never mind that I've never been in their congregation before. And think about the books in our pews. The Cranberry Hymnal, right? Now, we all know those replace the Sacred Green Book. And... I don't know about your congregation, but there was much ado in my home congregation when we moved from the sacred green book into this upstart new hymnal that they're trying to make us use. Right. And, and we laugh about it because some of the wounds are, are healed now. But, you know, I remember the first time that I said the confession out of the cranberry hymnal. And instead of saying we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves, I said we confess that we are to sin? This is weird. And God help me, if I'm not reading the creed, I will still say power of the Holy Spirit, because that's what I grew up with, right? We all have these things, and if you were, if you were an adult back in 1977 when, it, when the Holy Red Book was replaced by that upstart green book, then, then you had another set of changes back then, too. 
And so part of what Paul is dealing with is that in our faith, in our lives, in our experience, in each of our individual contexts and in the context of our congregations, we have both the expectations that I have based on my experience and the expectation that we have based on our experiences. And one of the reasons that every congregation that has ever existed has continued to have controversy is because those people, we can divide those people in a lot of different ways. Those people are telling us how we need to do things and, and they're really messing up this place. It's always been okay. But there's another truth in that too, isn't there? Why do you think we start off with confession? Do we start off with confession because I'm okay and you're okay and everything's going to be all right? No. We start off with confession because I'm not okay. And, and you're not okay. And everything's going to be all right. But it's not because of the power that I have in me. And to me, as strange as that sounds coming out of my lips, because let me tell you, I like to be in control of myself. I like to do what I want. And in fact, if you want to make certain that I'm not going to do the thing I'd already planned to do, then tell me to do that thing. And chances are I'll change my mind, right? I like to do the thing that I want to do. But here's another truth about the things that I want to do. Things that I want to do often include like extra cake. And, and while that's a real issue, it's also kind of a funny issue because I, I'm fluffy and that's okay, right? You know, but, but there are also things that I want to do. And some of those things I'm really good at. I am really good at giving my opinion. I am super good at that. And I have an opinion about lots of things. If you want to know, just ask me. And like, I don't need you to agree with me. I just need a space where I can talk to you about it, right? But is it always a good idea to tell you what my opinion is? Probably not. You know, I'm also really, really good at super critical remarks just like this. I can come up with a smart answer like nobody's business. But as my wife sometimes reminds me, you know, it's, it's not a good thing for me to engage that particular talent. You know, there are other things that I'm really good at that aren't healthy for me too. And one of the things that, that I've learned in my life and in my faith is that those things that you practice are the things that become habits. Those things that you feed are the things that you wear, right? Those, those things that you give your energy and time and talent and attention to are the things that become a part of who you are. And I don't know about y'all, but I kind of live in two truths. There's, there's the truth that I just know people think about me. And I call it, I call it the reel of shame. And for me, it's a reel that's, that I'm really, really good at engaging in. And it's that reel that reminds me, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not talented enough. You're not faithful enough. You know, you just all the things that I could possibly, that I could possibly put on there. And man, like I said, I'm really good at coming up with, with ways to, to criticize things. I am super good at criticizing myself. I've been practicing that for 42 years. You know, I, I live with this other truth, this false truth that tells me even sometimes when I'm pronouncing the order of forgiveness after we confess, you know, I can see God forgiving y'all because like y'all are good people. But is God's forgiveness good for me? 
I know what I think. And, and I know what goes on in my heart and in my head. And if y'all could see the things that go on in my heart and my head, you know, y'all wouldn't forgive me and God can't either. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And isn't that in some ways the truth we all live in, that truth where we really know what's going on? And Richard Rohr, who's a, who's a Catholic and a, and a spiritual father to a lot of people, says hurting people hurt people. And how true is that? You know, I, I go home after a, after a long day or frustrated or sometimes I just wake up that way. And God helped the first person to talk to me, especially if it happens to be someone I trust and I'm comfortable with and I don't guard myself very well. You know, I've said some of the hardest things that I've ever said to my wife. She doesn't deserve it, right? Think about, you know, we heard, we heard about growing up here in St. James, right? And when we get around people we trust, the thing in church that makes church so difficult sometimes is we expect people to be good in church, right? But the problem with church is that wherever we are, people act like people. And so what happens when we get hurt in church? We're not expecting it. And so it sometimes cuts us even deeper because we're not wearing our armor in the same way that we typically wear it when we're out in the world, right? And don't we engage in a narrative about our community, whether it's our congregation, or our community, whether it's our family, or our community, whether it's our nation, or our community, whether it's those people, whoever those people might be, you know, about how many ways they're messed up. And sometimes that gets in our way of loving them, doesn't it? Now, there's another truth. And it's a lawyer who helps reveal this truth. And you know, if a lawyer can help reveal the truth, then thanks be to God because we know Jesus is involved. And the lawyer comes to Jesus and says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And, and this is a really common question. And I think this is not only a question that's common to, to, to lawyers or common to the Jewish tradition, but it is very certainly a question that is common to our American culture right now. What do we have to do to be good people? What do we have to do to be saved? What do we have to do to, to be a part of this kingdom of God? You know, what do we have to do to be here? Because isn't that how we judge, like, whether someone is a good person or a bad person by the things that they do? And, you know, sometimes that just makes a lot of sense because if someone hits you every time they see you, you're going to avoid seeing that person. That's called wisdom, right? But, you know, there's, there's also the sense where sometimes the, the things that that we expect out of our culture and that we expect out of people and the stories we tell about our communities and the stories we tell about our congregation and the, the stories that we tell about our nation and the stories we tell about those people aren't really the whole truth because there's another thing that we're all good at. We're all good at overlooking our own faults and really focusing in on the faults of the people we're frustrated with. I can excuse everything that I've ever done, but God help me when that person says anything, because I, I don't care if they tell me the sky is blue, they're wrong, right? And so there's this other truth that we live in as the church. There's this other truth that Jesus shares with the lawyer, because the, Jesus shares with the lawyer the law, right? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Easy, right? Because the lawyer responds, well, I do all those things. 
I must be good. You know, what else do I lack? Isn't it interesting that he was able to see that even though he's doing all these things that Jesus says to do, there's, there's something else that he might be missing? I feel that way sometimes, too. You know, I, I don't care how hard I pray and how, how much I look. I'm always feeling like I'm missing something, right? And so Jesus tells the story of the, of the Good Samaritan. And, and really, it begins with a man who was beat up in the road. He was traveling. Now, Martin Luther King pointed out that he was going down the Jericho Road. Now, if you know geography like I do, which I don't, then you won't know this. And I didn't know this either until I heard Dr. King preach on this topic. That the Jericho Road is not like I-26 or, or even 378 or any of the roads that are well-paved and relatively straight and have everything cleared off for high visibility. The Jericho Road was a winding road, and the Jericho Road was a rocky road, and the Jericho Road in some places was kind of a wilderness road. And so there were thieves and people with bad intentions who used to wait around for people who would travel there, especially by themselves. And so it was not uncommon for someone to be beaten and robbed and left for dead on that road because of the kind of road it was. And, you know, when, when Dr. King said that, it put it into a little bit different perspective. You know, I've always heard, well, you know, the priest and the Levite, they couldn't touch this guy because you can't touch blood and you can't touch people who might be dead. And, you know, the law tells us that this is the right thing to do. The law tells us that we can't touch this person. The law tells us that it's legal for us to leave that person. The law tells us the way we're supposed to treat this person. And not only that, the law and my culture tell me how I'm supposed to treat this kind of person. And we all know how that feels too when the law and our culture tells us how we're supposed to treat certain kinds of people. And, you know, so Dr. King does something by giving us empathy for why these people might have passed along. But the other thing that Dr. King said in his sermon that I have found so profound, and every time I've preached on this text, ever since I heard it 12 and a half or so years ago, is that the Samaritan asked a different question. Not what's going to happen to me if I touch him. Because isn't following the law and those legal reasons not to mess with this guy and, and following my good sense, it tells me that I shouldn't do this because what will happen to me if I do this, those all focus on me, right? Dr. King said that the Samaritan asked the question, what will happen to him if I don't? Doesn't that begin to change things? Not what about me? Not me first. Not my needs first. Not my community first. But the gospel tells us to put other people first. Other people's needs first. People who don't look like us. People who on a good day, assuming this person was a good church person like, like the rest of us, would probably tell us that the Samaritan was someone we shouldn't interact with. That the Samaritan was one of those people who we shouldn't talk to because they're bad. Isn't it interesting that Jesus lifts up this person from the outside? As someone who gives us an example of how it is that we as people who follow Jesus are called to act. And the question that we're called to ask. Not what will happen to me if I do. But what will happen to them if I don't. And, and that for me is one of the most powerful questions in my life. 
Because when I'm all wrapped up in me, I can let a lot of things slide. And when I'm all wrapped up on, in me, I can make a lot of excuses for my behavior. And when I'm all wrapped up in me, then I do some of the most selfish things that I ever do in my entire life. Because when it's all about me, there's no room for Jesus. And even though the question that you found Jesus might be a weird question to me, if it's all about me, then very certainly Jesus is lost in my perspective. You know, and as I, as I preach this, and I'm, I'm going to talk, I'm going to mention something that's literally happening today. And I'm not saying this as a political thing, but this is the gospel. And the gospel calls us to think, as I preach this, this question of who is our neighbor is one of the most pertinent and relevant questions in our nation right now. And I'm not going to tell you what the right answer to that is, because that's not my job. But my job is to demonstrate that this 2,000-year-old question is not just something that sits on the pages of the Bible. This 2,000-year-old question is something that keeps coming up over and over and over and over again in our lives as people, in our lives as a community, in our lives as Americans, in our lives as people who live in the world. And what I do think is true is that we as people who follow Jesus are called to find a little bit different way to think about this question. Not, is my political person better than your political person? Because who cares about that? I really don't care about people's politics or what they think about that. Let's be really, really honest with you. What I do care about is how we answer the question that Jesus puts in our heart. That as people who are citizens of the kingdom of God. Who created the universe, who continues to create all that is seen and unseen, who continues to do all of these things, whether it's by the power of the Holy Spirit or in partnership with the Virgin Mary, right? Regardless of which holy text we're reading out of, who is my neighbor is a question that permeates every facet of our lives. Is my neighbor that person who made me angry? Well, if we're following Jesus, the answer is yes. Is that person the one who looks like me? Well, yeah. People who look like us are our neighbors too, right? Is, that per is my neighbor that person who doesn't look like me or doesn't believe like I do or who wasn't born where I was born? You know, all of a sudden that becomes a more, a more complicated question because there are other facets at play. But if we're all part of the family of God through the waters of baptism, I may not be able to answer legal questions about that because I'm a pastor, not a lawyer. But I think we can answer the gospel question. That there's no one in this world who's not a part of our family because God is creating them. And God loves what God creates. And as people who follow Jesus, our task is to learn how to love what God loves. And I don't know about y'all. But I feel really uncomfortable preaching this today. And it might be that some of y'all feel uncomfortable hearing this today. Because wherever we sit in terms of our politics, we all sit together, called to be the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, as we are called to be people together, as we are called to be God's people, as we are called to learn to love what God loves, 
In the same way those first Christians in the communities that Paul founded struggled with who belonged inside and outside of their church. We are living in the grand tradition of Jesus calling us to explore our hearts to struggle with that same question. We love those people. And can we love the people who God gives us to love? You know, can we, can we love the people who think the carpet should be green instead of red? Can we, can we love the people who thinks that we should light the right candle first? Can, can we love the people who still say the holy green book should be in the pews? Can we love the people who don't just argue with us about these surface things, but who disagree with us on fundamental, really difficult and challenging issues. Here's the good news about being someone who follows Jesus. Is our life as people who follow Jesus is not rooted in our agreement. There is not a word in the Bible that wasn't argued over by some scholar somewhere. There's not a word in the green book or in the red book or in the cranberry book that wasn't argued over. And God knows if they had a council over it, like the council of Nicaea that gave us the Nicene Creed, Somebody literally punched someone in the face over a few of those words, right? Like there's not anything that hasn't been argued about that we believe. Our identity as people who follow Jesus is not rooted in whether we agree. Our identity as people who follow Jesus is rooted in the waters of baptism because it's not about what I do, but it's about what God does in me. It's not about what we do or whether we agree or whether we love each other well, or whether we love each other poorly. It's not even about whether we believe all the same things. It's about what God is doing in us, and through us, and for us, for the sake of the world that God loves. And I've, I've gone longer than what I planned to. For those of you all watching your watches, I apologize. But I, in, in this moment, of difficulty. I also think it's important to be able to, to hear that it's okay to struggle together over this stuff. Because we're not called to be a place where everyone agrees. Thanks be to God for that. We are called to be a place that trusts each other well enough, and loves each other well enough, and engages in kindness enough that we can struggle together. And the central question of this gospel text today is not, who is my neighbor? Notice that's not what Jesus asks. But who was the neighbor to the man of those three? It's the question that Dr. King puts out there. Not what's going to happen to me if I don't, but what's going to happen to them if I don't. This week, is, as we go out from this place into our everyday lives and... As our leaders of this congregation continue to lead this congregation, and as we all kind of scratch our heads about what's going on up there, wherever up there is, you know, that's the question on our hearts. How are we a neighbor to the people around us? And who are we a neighbor to that God puts into our lives to be neighbors to? Amen. Amen.